This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is always these days is Dan Gunther. Dan, how are you doing this week? Uh, Matthew, I'm I'm doing well. Uh, up here in Canada, we had our long weekend uh, just this past weekend, the week before you guys do down south. So a little rested up, ready to go this week. I'm pretty jealous. I am so looking forward to the fact that I do not have to work on Monday. And in fact, the next weekend, going camping, so I don't have to work that Monday either. And, uh, oh gosh, I just, I need some relaxation. So I'm excited, so excited. But guys, you're not here to hear our cruddy, silly vacation plans. You're here to hear us talk about Star Trek books and comics and Wow, do we have a ton of news today. Uh, first and foremost, we've got the brand new cover for Atonement. That's right, we've got three book covers to judge today. Dan, what do you think of this one? Because uh, this is not something we've had in a while, honestly. <laughs> well, looking at this cover, I have to admit, I had a 90s pop song start going through my head. Did you start oh, thinking, really? I'm blue, looking at this cover? Ah, nice, nice. <laughs> I'd, I'd start singing it, but we might lose listeners. So <laughs> I um, thought about it, then I thought, ah, I'm just going to save the title. I don't need to yeah. subject everyone to that. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it does have this very bluish shit to it. What do you think about the fact that we have Janeway on the cover, and in so many of the books recently, we've just been getting, I feel like, ship shots, and... Oh, that's 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 catchy, ship shots. And, hmm. um, yeah. you know, here it's just the lone Admiral Janeway in... What I've got to say is a fantastic Admiral's uniform with a belt buckle that just won't quit. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a pretty impressive uh, belt buckle. I think it was on the Trek BBS. Someone was wondering if maybe she keeps mints in there or something. <laughs> it's uh, it's her, pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I think that's where she uh, keeps, you know, some sort of like uh, either Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies or her Altoids. Yeah. So. <laughs> That, or she has a very tiny phaser that Ooh. hides in that belt buckle as well, you know, that, that she puts a... a few different things together, like from her belts or whatever, and pips and stuff, and it creates a phaser. Yeah, that could be a pretty good kind of side thing to have, definitely, in a pinch. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's pretty cool. I, I like the, the look of this. Obviously, the plot of the book 
is basically the trial of Janeway by these Delta Quadrant species. So it's a very thematically fitting cover with her kind of all alone facing judgment. It's it's pretty cool. I like the cover. I can just imagine what I feel like is going through her brain in this picture is, where's my coffee? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) There's coffee in that nebula, but, you know, I can't go near that nebula because apparently I'm on trial right now, so... Yeah, uh, can somebody get me out of this glass container of emotion? <laughs> it, this is this is I like this cover. I I think it's really nice to see one of the characters on there. Obviously, Admiral Janeway. Um, you know she is back, and what a great way to I, I think um really celebrate that fact. And like you said, the the theme of the book. And that this book is going to have a lot of resonance with her journey of, you know, coming back to life and kind of continuing to face the decisions that she made in the Delta Quadrant. Um, And I'll be really interested to see how Janeway 2.0 deals with those repercussions now that she's gone through so much in the last couple of books and she's come back. So mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm really looking forward to this and, and Kirsten Beyer never disappoints me. So Definitely. No, uh, like you said, she never disappoints and yeah, I have yet to read anything from her that is less than fantastic. So definitely looking forward to this one. Well, the next book that we have a cover to judge is by Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman. They're doing their Star Trek costumes book that'll be coming out this fall. And the cover was released for this. And I do have to say, having the original TOS shirt, the Kirk colored command uniform there is is brilliant. It looks so good. And it just kind of shows you, I think, even with the TV show, back in the 60s, the quality, and you're immediately drawn to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing else costume-wise that screams Star Trek, so to have that kind of front and center on the book just makes sense to me. And yeah, it really shows where it all began and where it came from. And then we've got all these other really cool costumes at the bottom, and I thought, you know, a really good selection of just... uh, fascinating costumes and, and different things that Star Trek has done over the years. It's it's a pretty good cover for sure. Well, the bottom there has uh, Captain Picard from TNG with third season onward Ar- uniform. Arguably uh, just as iconic as the exactly. original for sure. Um, and gave us the fantastic Picard maneuver. <laughs> Definitely. And then, of course, I would say just as iconic as, as any of these is is the next uh, is Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine in her silver uniform, which, I mean, became such an icon. Uh, I, I would say, honestly, I think the geek pinup for many Star Trek fanboys and fanboys all over the world um, during the 90s. Um, I love the fact that from Deep Space Nine, you have represented uh, Worf in his wedding attire, which looking very regal, very Shakespearean. Mm-hmm. I really loved those costumes, his and Dax's when they got married. That was, that's pretty cool they included that because I thought that was a good one. We've got Spock from Star Trek Four, which is fantastic. And, and, and of course, him being in his return garb. So his Vulcan robes that he returned basically from the dead uh, as well. So there's a lot of returning from the dead in these books so we got Janeway Spock I mean who's next hmm 
Yeah, that's a good observation. Unfortunately, this version of him doesn't have the little torn piece tied around his ears that I thought was really cool, but, you know, it's still pretty that's cool. That's disappointing. That's disappointing. Or attempting to use a colorful metaphor, uh, ah, which is yes. hard to do on the front of a book. Um, and then from the new Star Trek series, the new JJ-verse, we have Uhura in the deep sea diving outfit from Into Darkness. Now, I do have to ask you, of all the costumes, is this the best costume choice, do you think, from the JJ-verse? <laughs> this most represents the work that they did on those films? Or is it just because Zoe Saldana looks very nice in this uniform? Well, I'm, I'm not going to say it's a bad costume uh, or that it's entirely representative of all the movies, but I can definitely give you a good answer as to why they picked that one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty much the same reason they picked 7 of 9 as well. Um, But this is fantastic. And I'm excited because, you know, um, Paula and Terry did the Deep Space Nine Companion, which is one of the very best, if not the very best, Star Trek Companion. Um, They they got to be on set and, Mm. and therefore got access that nobody else had. And I'm very excited to see what they do with this book and how they present these costumes and, and what went into all the work to put them together. Um, this book is going to come out this fall and it's going to be around $60 retail, but I'm pretty sure that if you go on Amazon, you could probably get it pre-ordered for less than that. So I'm excited to check this out. Um, I, I love that we're getting every year a few more uh, Star Trek nonfiction books. And mm-hmm. I would suspect that next year we will probably get a few more of these as well because of the fact that it is the 50th anniversary and there is a lot to celebrate. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm very excited to see where they're going to kind of go with these nonfiction books specifically. For sure. Yeah, we're not quite up to the heyday of, you know, the days when we were getting all the technical manuals and that sort of thing. But it's been a nice kind of ramping up of these sorts of books, and it's really good to see. The very last book that we have a cover to judge is the very last book of the year, actually, which is Greg Cox's child of two worlds and dan what do you think of the, of this book cover because a lot like um the voyager book cover that we had this one has a nice promo of a character instead of a ship mm-hmm. well it's very simple like the layout isn't isn't overly complicated you've got spock in his uh the cage look with the the old uniform blue colored as he looked when he was under pike's command and uh, i have to say it's it's a visually striking cover i love the colors and leonard nimoy's face front and center just really kind of pops and gives it this uh kind of just stark character look that just looks great i'm i'm excited for this book i'm a huge spock fan and greg cox is a great writer and this cover i think just shows us what we're going to get a spock story set in this time period i'm excited for this for a couple reasons one obviously because of losing leonard nimoy i think this is a fantastic way to end the year Mm -hmm. for star trek books second i i think that the artistic value of this cover is is beautiful um just the artwork alone is really well done i love the color choices Mm -hmm. Um, i love that it looks like a painting even though it could just be some photoshop work but it it looks like art you know in in the same way those seekers covers they're art you know and i like this artistic representation of spock and you even have 
they're two different worlds. You have one at the top that's larger and and one around the side of his head that's smaller. So um, I just, I really like the thought that's gone into this cover and I think it's very striking and it's something that when you see it, you're immediately going to be drawn to it, especially in the bookstore mm-hmm. and, uh, or if you were just, you know, checking out Star Trek books on you know, iBooks or something like that. So I have to say that this is really well done, and I am very excited to, to be getting this book at the end of the year and uh, seeing what Greg has in store for us, especially since we just, you know, there aren't a ton of books in that time period with Spock, and it's always nice to kind of see how they deal with that character when, you know, he, he was a little bit more shouty. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, what it really comes down to is uh, much like the Seekers covers, I would love to see this as a poster. I would love this on my wall. I think it'd be beautiful. So, yeah, I'm on board. I I completely agree with you. Having, um, you know, just maybe the Star Trek text at the top or maybe just Child of Two Worlds without anything else. I mean, yes. This is great art, and it does harken back, I think, to some of those great covers that we got in the past. Um, I remember Chris and I did a long time ago Shadows in the Sun book, Mm, and I love how those old hardcovers had actual, it's like somebody had oil painted Mm -hmm. for the cover, and I love those old covers like that, and I wish that we got more of them. Um, The Star Wars books for the longest time with Bantam Run did the same thing. And I miss that, you know, and that's one of the things I think I've been so excited about with Seekers and the covers is that there's so much time and care going into it, you know. Mm. And I I think in a lot of ways, you know, just people can tell, you know, it, it it's so easy for anybody to slap something together and Photoshop these days. But an artist spending some time really crafting something it says a lot. I mean, even for movie posters these days, heck, we just get pretty much a photoshopped movie poster with characters from the movie instead of, you know, like a Drew Struzan Star Wars style poster. Right. You know, mm-hmm. that just, it pulls you in. So um, I love to see art coming back in this way because I it's important. You mm-hmm. we, ju- we kid on the show that we judge a book by its cover. But we really do. Yeah. And, and everybody um, does for sure. It's what draws it, somebody to a book before anything else. And yeah, like mm-hmm. you say, it's very, yes. very important. Yeah. So it's nice to see them some taking some care. Um, so for all of these, I think that they are going to be fantastic. And well, you know, what a great thing. Um, some great books coming out uh, to, to get people, you know, this one um, is, is going to come out right after Christmas. Uh, the costumes guide we've got there coming out Uh, what a great holiday gift for the star trek fan in your life so perfect timing for those guys well we do have a couple of comics to talk about for you and the first one is ongoing 45 and we are wrapping up the eurydices series that it started which was a three-part series here as the enterprise is finally on its five-year mission and had been stranded in the delta quadrant and this is the wrap-up after eurydices had sold out Kirk and the rest of the crew what did you end up thinking Dan about the way they kind of wrapped up the story um I I actually really enjoyed this story uh I kind of like how much more time was given to this story than to the original kind of behemoth story that led into it uh 
I mean, we kind of knew going in that uh, Eurydice would um, redeem her character and and save them. Uh, but the actual uh, execution of that, I thought was really good. I I enjoyed it. I knew where the story was going a lot of the time, and it was a little bit predictable, but it brought me along for the ride. I, I liked where it went, and I enjoyed it. How about you? What did you think? It is, I think I thought exactly the same thing. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. It was just pretty good. I enjoyed uh, the wrap-up. Um, the fact that, you know, she helped the crew uh, was was very predictable. Um, it was interesting, obviously, the reason that she was doing it. But mm-hmm. again, I felt like that was kind of predictable that, okay, I already feel like this character is going to help out, you know, Kirk and the crew. It's probably because she has a reason that that she's working for these people beyond the fact that she's trying to make money. Right. Uh, because, you know, the characters just never played like that. Now, I think it would have helped maybe if she had come off in the first two completely kind of jerky and kind of put out that she's helping the Enterprise and that she doesn't really care. Um, she's just looking to make something off of them um, as if they had said, hey, we'll trade you this, this, or this. I think that would have helped the storyline just a little bit so that you weren't so much in the mindset, well, she's just going to help them in the end. Mm-hmm. Made um, it a bit more of a surprise, a little bit more. Y- yeah. yeah, or at least tried to. So, mm-hmm. But on a whole, it's not a bad story. And I'm interested to see where they keep going with this. I mean, this is the point of this where we are really discovering the unknown. And even though, um, you know, they're still in the Delta Quadrant, who knows how they're going to get back. I'm interested to see kind of what they do if they'll run into any of the Voyager races uh, that that they ran into uh, and use them in their own way, the same kind of thing that they did with the Q Gambit. Uh, so I just, I, there's a lot of different areas you can go with this. I just hope that they'll continue to expand their horizons of what this crew can run into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of new directions that they can go in for sure. But there's also a lot of old directions they seem to want to go in. I mean, Kirk gets to kiss the woman at the end. So, you know, they're not straying too far from what we're what we're used to with Star Trek. <laughs> that is true. That is true. And you know, what I thought, too, would have been really interesting is to have Eurydice's join the Enterprise for a while, a little bit like Neelix did with Voyager. Mm-hmm. And, and really get to explore that new character. Although I guess they probably don't want that because then her and James Kirk would be hooking up. And I'm pretty sure their goal is to find a way to kind of play the romance between him and Carol mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah, no, I that guess makes depending sense. on where they want to go with the new movie. Yeah. She would be a lot less annoying than Neelix, though. So this is true (laughs) she was already less annoying than neelix so uh two thumbs up for that (laughs) yeah well i mean you know that is setting the bar pretty low but you know yeah i mean when people (laughs) call you the jar jar binks of the star trek universe yeah it's hard to you know live down that reputation (laughs) well the next comic that we have dan to talk about in the last one is the newest new visions comic which is resistance where the original series crew runs into the borg 
Now, what did you think of this? Because I remember us talking about it thinking, oh, I don't, I don't know how you do this without messing it up. <laughs> um, I actually really enjoyed this one, as it turned out. I, I thought kind of, you know, introducing the Borg this early in a way, well, I mean, they did on Enterprise, but I felt like that worked. They they did a good job with that. But I was thinking like, okay, the Borg in every single time period outside of the time period they're supposed to be in, that's getting a little ridiculous. But in retrospect, they did it quite well here. I mean, they never, the original crew never really knows what they're up against. And it's kind of left to the audience who knows Star Trek to really piece together and and obviously know what the threat is and and that's where the story kind of derives most of its tension from the original crew is really in the dark as to what this you know really powerful new threat is and i think personally the story works really really well i think for the most part my thought was this is the best you can do without ruining it Mm mm-hmm at the same time, I still feel a little bit like you were talking about that. Okay, the next generation, they never had heard anything about that. There weren't any new records of the Borg. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that, okay, if if the Enterprise NX-01 had had experience with cybernetic beings like this, the Enterprise, the original Enterprise that we know from Kirk had an experience with cybernetic beings like this it would seem like they would be able to pull up those records and be like well archer and you know kirk both ran into something like this we don't know what they're called but we've definitely run (laughs) into this before i think these are the same people so um it's the problem of of really doing that it's almost the retcon of that you know oh kirk well he met the borg and faced them down but he didn't really know who they were, and they were crazy Borg. <laughs> so that's the way of kind of getting around the storyline. And, and again, I think John Byrne does the best you can possibly do without feeling like he totally ruined something. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a little much. Yeah. No, it is a really tough thing to do. And I mean, you know, my preference would be, you know, uh, just maybe leave them alone and, and don't introduce the Borg into the original series. But if you're going to do it, then I think they, like you said, did the best that they could for sure. Um, I kind of was thinking while I was reading this, and like this gets into kind of the fan theories and and ridiculousness and stuff, but, uh, you know, if you really want to kind of jam all of the continuity and canon together and, and try and make it fit, you know, there's like the hints of these things over the years, maybe some intrepid scientist kind of putting it all together and, thinking, oh, this needs to be investigated, and that maybe led to the the Hansons going off into the Delta Quadrant to look for this legend that's popped up every once in a while. But yeah, once you start getting into that, it gets a little bit fan-wanky, I want to say. And yeah, it's it's tough to do for sure, but uh, it was an enjoyable story. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, you said it best. If you're going to do this story, this really is probably the best you can do. And um, that means I think it's definitely worth checking out because it was it was really interesting to see how they walked the line. And I think they walked the line very well in a very interesting way. Um, and it made sense. It, it didn't feel 
just like, okay, we have to service the story somehow that Kirk and the rest of the crew never, you know, hear these people say what they are, even really see them or anything like that. So I think they do a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. One uh, kind of side effect I have to note is because most of the story takes place uh, on the Enterprise Bridge, the art actually ended up looking pretty okay because it was mostly just screen grabs from the show and uh, rearranging people on the bridge. Um, There are a couple points where they're down on the planet or you know, on the asteroid and the gravity's kind of acting wonky. And I'm not exactly sure what Chekhov is doing at one point, kind of a somersault through the air or something, but, uh, it, it, that's the Russian jig. Ah, yes. So, yeah. Yeah. You, you just missed it. The the Russians, you didn't know this, but they invented the jig in the first place. And that's, <laughs> that's what he was actually doing. So. Well, it's, it's pretty impressive. If, if that's one of the things that was invented in Russia, then, well, I got to give Chekhov props. That's pretty good. Yeah, it looked really, I mean, he pulls it off nicely. (laughs) Well, Dan, I am very excited about tonight because a few years ago, a friend of mine challenged me to watch this British television show called Doctor Who, which I had seen uh, before in the sense that, like, I knew of it out there, you know, Um, and I sat down. And I fell in love with it. I watched through the entire new series, got myself ready, was able to see the 50th anniversary in the theaters with fans and 3D, and then been following it ever since. And I saw this, you know, pretty close after starting Literary Treks, that there was a Doctor Who, Star Trek The Next Generation crossover called Assimilation 2. Uh, assimilation squared squared? yeah i'm not sure (laughs) yeah i think it's probably assimilation squared but i like to i like to do it as a question like i'm a monty python simulation two (laughs) um so i i'm very excited that we were going to talk about this this was a crossover series that happened in 2002 and obviously it involved the crew of the enterprise d from star trek the next generation as well as the doctor from Doctor Who. Uh, this was the 11th Doctor, if you're wondering, with Amy and Rory Pond. And it did actually include a very nice little vignette with Kirk, the original Enterprise, and Tom Baker's Doctor. So there's a lot of great fan service here. And this was a eight-part series. We're going to cover the first omnibus, which covers issues one through four, and this is written by Scott and Dave Tipton with Tommy Lee and features art by J.K. Woodward, which we've seen in some other great Star Trek comics. And so, Dan, you had mentioned, um, and I thought that this was a really interesting thing to talk about, that this comic takes place in that post-Wolf 359 Federation and it really kind of drives the storyline on the next generation side of what they're doing. What did you think about this? Because I thought uh, where it takes the Federation was really interesting. Yeah, it was definitely interesting and something we've not really seen before. Um, You know, following the best of both worlds, like it was a big blow to the Federation and they lost a lot of ships. But at the same time on the show, you know, we don't get a lot of talk about, you know, what goes into building the Federation back up or or how they coped with that. I think Shelby has a line 
uh, at the end of that episode, something along the lines of, oh, we'll have the fleet back up within a year or something. So, I mean, it sounds like not a big deal, but in this story, you know, we see this post-Wolf 359 Federation with, you know, scarce resources. And um, one thing that really kind of made me raise my brow a little bit was uh, this mining colony, the Federation pushing its uh, its miners to meet these quotas in order to build the fleet back up and, you know, pushing safety guidelines in order to do it. It, it seemed a little bit kind of out of place for what we've seen of Star Trek, but uh, it was interesting. You know, I, I like when stories take us maybe to uncomfortable places or places or things we don't really think about or talk about in this utopia of Star Trek. So it was, it was a little interesting, if a little bit making me question it just a little bit. Well, and what was really interesting too, is that it kind of dovetailed, I think very nicely into what we'll kind of see in Deep Space Nine. You know, and so this is midway point here through the next generation. We're moving towards, um, you know, that feeling of Deep Space Nine. I I just liked that we were seeing a picture of kind of some of the things the Federation is going to be struggling with with the Dominion War. Mm -hmm. And that's really, I think, fascinating to think that there are times like this. Wolf 359, huge battle, lots of ships lost, lots of lives. Nothing quite as large, obviously, as the Dominion War, what we saw, but got to be hard to recover from something like this you know you, you can't just do it like you said with shelby um and recover within a year you know um shipbuilding takes time and uh it takes resources and i thought that that was very interesting that they are on this planet um they are mining this planet and they are pushing their people and safety regulations in a way that's not probably the best idea but because they are scared of another Borg attack coming, which they should be because first contact's <laughs> going to happen. You know, um, the Dominion War is going to be around the corner. They don't even know that yet. So mm-hmm. uh, it was really interesting to see that, yes, even the Federation at this point, especially after Wolf 359, and we don't see it a lot on TNG, but we can tell by the time Deep Space Nine rolls around, there's a different feeling in the air mm-hmm. in the Federation. And um, it's not quite as happy-go-lucky as it was when, you know, the Enterprise was doing nothing but ferrying dignitaries around from planet to planet. You know, we faced an enemy that we don't know how to stop. Mm-hmm. No, and that's very true. And, you know, in in no way is this point proven more than in this story when obviously we get a huge invasion by the Borg uh, with some unlikely allies from a different uh, universe franchise. I, I, I don't know what the terminology would be. An alternate yeah. franchise. I'm not sure. An alternate franchise. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that's really interesting because just the way the comic is laid out um, is, is very, I think is very well done. It starts with, the Borg and the Cybermen from Doctor Who invading Delta Four, which is the Delton planet, if if you weren't aware. Um, so just like Ilea and those characters, and it is a, I mean, it just starts off with a bang, mm-hmm. you know, literally. They are 
taking over this planet quickly and then it jumps to you know the the storyline with the doctor and you're kind of like what what what's going on but i love the way that they kind of set up where the story is going and then kind of tell you the backstory of how we get there i felt like to me that was a really well done and it to me it worked did it work for you yeah, it was. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, it's kind of something I notice a lot of television shows and movies, particularly these days, seem to be doing is doing this nonlinear storytelling, like uh, opening things with a bang and, and showing like some big, huge piece of action. And then, oh, well, this is how we get there now. Now, now let's fill in the blanks. And, you know, the cynical part of me might be saying something like, oh, attention spans these days, they need that that hook before they'll get invested. Um, but I think also just as a storytelling device, it's uh, it's a neat way to do things. It, it does introduce that hook really early on and gets you really excited and gives you a little bit of dramatic irony that you know something bad's going to happen and the characters don't. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a neat way to introduce this story and it certainly got my attention early on. Did you find it a little odd, though, that Picard and the crew, I mean, Riker and Data and Worf, all almost drowned in this mine. Uh, They are mining on a water planet that only has mountains that rise above it. And so, obviously, their biggest worry is that they're going to have a leak because of all of the safety protocols that they've kind of been skirting. There's a leak. I mean, they almost die. And they get back to the Enterprise, they talk about the safety issues, yada, 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 and Picard's like, oh, we just got the new holodeck installed, (laughs) you should go check it out, number one. And they're like, what? What? Go go play on the holodeck, you almost died, but you're fine. It's just (laughs) a mere flesh wound. And this is something that, like... When I first thought of that whole thing about the state of the Federation and post-Wolf 359 where you have scarce resources and everyone's, you know, working hard to rebuild the fleet. And I was thinking early on, like, well, they they play on the holodeck on the next generation and they, they don't seem to be really hard done by and that kind of thing. And then a page later, <laughs> let's go play on the holodeck. Oh, well, okay. Exactly. <laughs> Not only the holodeck, but they've given us an upgraded holodeck. So yeah. Everything's so they're spending resources on that. Like, how bad could it be, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was hilarious. And that is where the Doctor's timeline and the Next Generation timeline meet because they are on a Dixon Hill adventure and Rory and the Doctor and Amy are walking around and they run into Riker and Data and Crusher and of course they both don't know what's going on until Riker decides uh let's shut this down and of course the doctor and his blue box are still there <laughs> I actually thought that was really clever cuz and and the way they introduce it is uh the doctor and his companion and and her husband they're traveling uh, to San Francisco, they think, and they appear in San Francisco and, and check it out for a little while. And then they see data and you're thinking, oh man, there's a time travel thing. Somehow the Enterprise crew has gone back to San Francisco. And then you realize, oh no, they've gone to visit the holodeck and they're actually on the holodeck. I thought that whole just kind of piecing it together and revealing it that way was really clever and uh, pretty cool. Well, that's when the Enterprise gets the memo, basically, hey, 
Delta Force being attacked, but they're being attacked by these aliens, uh, the Borg, and somebody else. We don't really know who they are. And the Doctor is walking through the Enterprise, and he mentions that Worf is a Klingon. And then he's weirded out because he's like, I remember this, but I shouldn't be remembering it. And I'm remembering that I'm remembering things now that I shouldn't be remembering. <laughs> I don't know if that didn't made any sense to anybody. Um, <laughs> there are no knowns and what, there are known unknowns. I don't Anyway. <laughs> exactly. Well, and this is where we get the cameo of Kirk and Tom Baker's doctor that all of the sudden the doctor just kind of freezes and we go back in time to this point when the Enterprise is going to a research facility that they haven't heard from that's in a nebula that has communication problems anyway and they're going to check it out and when they get there everything kind of seems wrong and that's when they find that there are cybermen there and the tom baker's and tom baker's doctor helps them solve the problem with a little bit of uh, gold dust from kirk's communicator to stop the (laughs) cybermen and then of course the 11th doctor comes back and is like uh been here before which that was kind of nice i i liked that that callback of how you kind of bring these two universes together Mm -hmm. yeah no it was kind of a nice little surprise that that little bit of a vignette with uh kirk and his crew i also loved how the style that it was drawn in was so completely different from the the next generation portion of the comic it was a really kind of neat uh stylistic choice on the on the part of the artists there um and also yeah i thought that worked as well yeah it was really it kind of i don't i don't know if i can explain exactly what i mean by this but it almost took me like a page to realize oh hey this is like a completely different comic in this comic now for something completely different (laughs) exactly yeah we're (laughs) gonna be introducing uh british humor in here but uh, exactly yeah it's perfect (laughs) and the cameo by tom baker's doctor was really cool now this is kind of the point where i have to admit before all of our listeners my my geek credibility is gonna kind of take a hit here um i've seen a little bit of doctor who over the years um and I think it kind of comes from me really wanting to, wanting to be a completist and wanting to watch it all. And then you look at that and it's so daunting that it's really hard to do. Um, so I've seen a little bit of uh, the Tom Baker doctor, a little bit of the early stuff because I really wanted to watch it first. And then I finally just kind of started watching the start of the new series. So I have to admit, I've never actually even seen anything to do with the 10th doctor or sorry, the 11th doctor at all. So uh, this is my first introduction to his character. <laughs> so did you find as kind of being the newbie to Doctor Who, did you find this kind of strange or were you able to follow it because you sort of understand how the Doctor works? Yeah, I was able to follow it like as a very casual um, Doctor Who viewer. Uh, and I, I thought the the character seemed really interesting to me and different from the uh, the Doctors that I have seen. Uh, so I really enjoyed it and the whole premise was easy enough cause I'm aware enough of Dr. Who to kind of get that part of it, but I'm just kind of curious as someone who knows Dr. Who a lot better than me, like how is this depiction of the 11th doctor? Is it pretty, pretty accurate? I have to say that reading this, the writers here, 
um, Scott and David and, and Tony, they nail the 11th Doctor's way of speaking. And I can hear him saying everything exactly as Matt Smith would portray it. Hmm. And the same thing with Amy and Rory. I, I can hear, you know, Karen Gillan and I can hear Arthur Duvall saying these lines just as they would if they were on you know one of the seasons with Matt Smith as the doctor and it's it it's so nice because I'm feeling this comic you know in in the way that I wasn't feeling the the crossover with the apes this all makes sense you know mm. as, as you said you're familiar enough with Doctor Who and I think that the understanding of that with the understanding of star trek and the temporal mechanics of both make this make sense why Mm -hmm. they might cross over somehow and i really really like that because it doesn't seem forced whatsoever really that all of a sudden you know the doctor shows up in a star trek timeline because why couldn't it from what we know of doctor who and from what we know of star trek they're just different universes so why couldn't they cross over well that actually makes me really excited to uh kind of get to the matt smith episodes of doctor who because i'm really digging his character in this story <laughs> i love the way he speaks i love uh i mean the doctor always seems to have a really unique way of thinking but some of the things he says here i just love the way he turns a phrase and uh yeah, I'm, I'm I'm loving this interaction. It m- makes sense to me. It feels like they're genuinely interacting. Uh, it's not forced in the way that I thought um, that, you know, Kirk and the apes and, uh, you know, the whole, all of the characters in Planet of the Apes, that felt a little bit forced to me and just never really rang true. But this feels very genuine. Um, from what I know of you know, the Doctor Who universe, they're reacting as they would, and the TNG crew seem to be reacting exactly as I'd imagine they would as well. So it's working very well for me. Yeah, I I think that you're just spot on, and, and these writers have just kind of knocked it out of the park to make this work. And like you said, it doesn't feel like they're just shoehorning it in. You know, it, it feels all very natural. And, and especially I like the part of the story where um, Picard takes the Doctor and Amy and Rory to meet Guinan. And, you know, Guinan's always been this very mysterious character that Picard knows very little about but trusts implicitly. And they have this conversation I thought it was so interesting because apparently Guinan's part Time Lord. <laughs> um, so that's that's pretty cool. Or at least basically has the the way of viewing the universe in much the same way that a Time Lord does. So, again, I thought that using the the things from Star Trek and from Doctor Who that really kind of mesh together and just finding a way to interweave it, uh, I just it felt smart. It, it felt like a great correlation, you know. Oh, Guinan. Well, of course, she has these kind of mystical, strange powers uh, that we don't necessarily understand. She's lived for a very long time, a little bit like the Doctor. Uh, the fact that they would be kind of equals a little bit made a, a ton of sense, and I really, really liked it. It made it, I felt like the story you gel even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, uh, I have to admit, when I first read this, not something that I had thought about uh, until they introduced Guinan, and I thought, oh, of course, that that makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, as as much as we learn about Guinan, there's a lot about her that we don't know. Uh, for example, like her 
past dealings with Q and why Q of all people seems a little bit afraid of her is something that's always kind of stuck in the back of my mind. Um, it's that kind of like weird cat thing she does with her claw hands. You know? <laughs> exactly. It's that. That's what she's afraid of. <laughs> well, you know, if Whoopi Goldberg came up to me doing that too, I I, I might be a little afraid as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, and and also like the kind of insights she has uh, when the universe, when the timeline changes in Yesterday's Enterprise, for example. Well, why does she have that awareness? What is it about her or her species that gives her that? And I, I like the exploration of that. I like. I always liked whenever the next generation went there with her character and, and teased a little bit about it. So yeah, it makes total sense that she would get the doctor, that she would mm-hmm. be on the same level as him in some ways, for sure. And now for something completely different. <laughs> a Guinan who is a Time Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, the the story kind of wraps up here in part one by them finding out that the Cybermen are actually too powerful for the Borg. And the Borg actually contact the Enterprise and ask for Locutus for his help. Mm. And the the comic ends with basically Picard saying, no way in hell is this happening. Um, and so... And then to be continued where we'll go next. So I'm very excited, honestly, to see where this storyline progresses to because I think that they've done such a great job of setting up the storyline. Like, I I feel completely immersed in what's happening. I don't feel like it's forced. Uh, It feels completely natural. And I can't wait to see how they kind of resolve this storyline. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to when we can squeeze in, you know, part two for Literary Treks because I want to find out what happens. (laughs) And I'm like, do I just go read it or do I wait till we're going to do the show? I don't know if I can hold (laughs) off, man. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. Um, I, I really like where this story ends. And again, they nail the characters. I mean, that is exactly the reaction I think Picard would have. Like, no way are help the Borg? Are you kidding me? No. I'm not Janeway. (laughs) I've always actually wondered, like, (laughs) if Picard were there when Janeway proposed, like, we make an alliance with the Borg and, like, just have him at that meeting and see what his reaction would be like. Are you kidding me? (laughs) No way in hell, Janeway. (laughs) I'm taking command of Voyager. (laughs) <laughs> exactly yeah no she is unfit for command <laughs> not gonna happen yeah no absolutely uh yeah and and it's very fascinating because i i love this last um image of picard with his arms crossed saying like no this is not gonna happen and the doctor's looking shocked at him and Riker behind him has this like yep that's the captain I know. Look, <laughs> could have told you that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, That's and he looks awesome. pleased. Like, yeah, no, we're not helping the Borg. Are you crazy? Yeah. Well, and it. What I like is that obviously they're doing that thing where the Doctor doesn't completely understand the Borg, and Picard doesn't completely understand the Cybermen, and so they both have their opinions on what should be done from their own experiences, Mm -hmm. you know, and the doctors had these enemies come back so many times. And of course, Picard is tired of dealing with the Borg. So yeah, I like that. Again, they're using 
the different parts of these series as they kind of collide to really create a uh, a really interesting and exciting story. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's just working. What did you think of the art? You know, we talked about the fact that there is the um, switch in art there, and we, we both said we liked that. What did you end up thinking about the the rest of the art? Because it's it's obviously very reminiscent of the work that we got on City on the Edge Forever series. Um, and uh, what did you end up thinking? Do you feel like it works? Did they get the characters right enough? Uh, for the most part, I really enjoyed the art. I think a few... Um, parts of it kind of suffer from the same problems that the city on the edge of forever one did, which was, you can kind of tell the scene that they grabbed the screenshot from to do the, the face. There's a, there's a couple parts where, you know, Riker's face or Picard's face, you're kind of like, Oh, I know that episode. That's, that's when this happened or that happened. Uh, but for the most part, overall, stylistically, I really liked this, um, I, th- I find sometimes when they do this kind of artistic route, they kind of sacrifice the look of the background or the sets or that kind of thing. But in this one, like everything was spot on. Uh, when they're in sick bay, it looks like sick bay. When they're in the observation lounge, it looks like the observation lounge. Everything felt like it worked. Um, and overall, like I said, it's a really beautiful looking comic for sure. I love that there are some points when the characters kind of look dead on. Like the character, mm-hmm. um, whether it was Riker or Worf or Data or, you know, any of the characters here. And then there's sometimes where it's a lot more of an artistic take on that character. And so I really did enjoy that. Um, I, I'm with you. You know, there are some places where it's like, oh, I would have loved a little bit more detail mm-hmm. in, in this. But on a whole, I think it's beautiful. I, I enjoy this type of comic where... You can tell somebody is trying to create art, not just, you know, um, representation of what they've seen on TV. So that was really nice. Um, I, I was I was just lamenting the fact that my two favorite redheads weren't on screen together. Dr. Beverly Crusher and Amy Pond, who's mm. my favorite companion from Doctor Who. So I would have loved a scene where it was just them. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, the artwork is really good here. I, I really liked it. Um, but before we hit... The ratings, I, I did want to kind of ask you, so we did the Trek Apes crossover, and now we read the first part of the Doctor Who, and we're going to be getting this summer the crossover with Green Lantern. Uh, what do you think of this crossover idea? Um, do you think it's it's something you hope to see more of now that we've read one and a half of them um and we we do know we have another one coming that's a it's a bit of a tough question because for me you know the crossover thing is a bit of a gimmick but if it's done really well and you have a really good story to base it on then yes go for it do it if you're doing it just to kind of mash them together and see what happens and you don't have a good story to go with it or you you're just doing it because oh we can get the audience from these guys and the audience from these guys and make a lot of money then you know i i i think of trek apes for example and i just i don't feel like they came at that with a really good story and said hey here's a really good idea for a story let's do this crossover. I feel like they came at it with, let's do this crossover and come up with a story and try and make it work. Whereas in this case, and I could be wrong, but I feel like 
they had a really good story. They looked at the Borg and they looked at the Cybermen and said, hey, let's put these two together, make a really good story out of it, because I think this is a great idea. Uh, that's the feeling I get. And, you know, for me, when it comes down to any piece of fiction or any work of art, you know, have a good idea and go with it. Don't do it just because, oh, let's let's try this out and see if we can make money. No, do it because you have a great idea and you want to do it and you have an artistic vision and want to see where you can take it kind of thing. So in this case, I liked it in Trek Apes. I didn't like it. So I'm going to have to say, yeah, crossover is a good idea. Again, if you have the a good idea, not a good idea if you just want to make some money. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I would add something to that, but as Fat Amy says in Pitch Perfect, I think you crushed it. <laughs> um, I think you said everything that I would say uh, on that, and uh, I, I completely agree with you. So, well, being at the the end of the first part here of the Doctor Who Star Trek to the Next Generation crossover, what would be your rating? Uh, well, that's a tough question without seeing the whole story, but at this point, um, I'm really enjoying it. I have some questions. I feel like I have to go watch some episodes that feature the Cybermen because I don't know a lot about them. Uh, but at this point, I would have to say uh, I'm getting a good four out of five smashed Borg cubes. Um, I think I think they crushed it too. Yeah, <laughs> they really did. Um, no, I agree with you. I think, you know, I am going to say that I don't have to see the the end to say that this is good setup mm -hmm. you know this really is um it, it feels like great setup i enjoy the entire thing there's nothing about this storyline that i don't like except for maybe the small part where they go to the hollow deck just because that's where they want to meet the doctor <laughs> and that makes for a cool place to meet him um other than that it's brilliant i love it it sounds like the characters on from both franchises and yeah they completely nail it so I'd give this um, my two favorite redheads. So Ooh, that's a very um, good yeah, rating. This, yeah, this is fantastic. Well, that was a pretty interesting discussion about the the first part of you know this smashing together of two really great science fiction juggernauts, Star Trek and Doctor Who, uh, coming together for an epic story. I really enjoyed this talk. How about you? Dan, I I did. I can't. I really can't. I I think that I'm gonna end up having to read this second part just to see how it ends <laughs> before we end up doing it um, on the show because I'm just so excited to actually see how it ends. And nice. you know what a huge difference from where we were with the Trex Apes series, where I felt like I was having to pull my own teeth to to just you know read it for the show just so we could talk a little bit about it. You know, in our news segment, so. I'm very excited, you know, uh, to, to see where this goes. And I'm really hoping, I'm crossing my fingers that Lantern, the Green Lantern series will be a lot like this. And I think it might be just because of the, the universes that they are putting together. Mm -hmm. Where you can, you know, the little bit you know about Green Lantern, the little bit you know about Star Trek, okay, I can see how this would happen. And so, I, you know... The same thing with Doctor Who. It just makes sense for these two universes to, to collide. Um, and there's no reason for them really not to. Uh, and it actually does turn out to be a heck of a lot of fun. So 
but it is not the only thing that we have been talking about here on Trek FM the past week. So here's a quick look at some of those other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And I think it was a very anticlimactic thing for a lot of people because they were expecting me to to do, you know, my raw and ranting thing. But instead, I just was like, oh, that's depressing. Okay, bye. Earl Grey. They've now shifted into the Biff-controlled 1985. Who got a hold of the Almanac in order to turn yesterday's Enterprise? The Enterprise C is the DeLorean in this scenario. The Orb. I'd like to see the Borg assimilate Ferenginar, and then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see drones. Yeah, yeah. The, the world's strictest bank ever. Right. I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. <laughs> the nanites go into you. Yes. <laughs> to the journey. I, I, I kind of want something with a little bit more teeth. For some okay. reason, like like starting a garden just doesn't scream mirror universe to me. <laughs> starting a garden doesn't have teeth. <laughs> the ready room. I hate to put it this way, but maybe in, in some strange twisted logical sense if archer just kind of flew on by and didn't help the colonists the enterprise d would have never crash landed on viridian so it's not troy's fault it's captain archer's fault literary treks this is this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because i don't think the time period's supposed to be that long Mm -hmm. but what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before well i thought personally that it was really cool the 602 club my two favorite scenes in the film are cap saying language (laughs) and then the rest of what the jokes they go with that and then cap moving the hammer just enough then thor's face when he can't pick it up is priceless and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out these shows, find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You know you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can do a few things to really help us out. and uh, It's really you that can make this show grow. And so by giving us a star rating and review, that helps us be more visible in iTunes. That helps us rise up the rankings so that when people are looking for podcasts to listen to, they'll see ours before others, as well as hitting that subscribe button. That helps out a lot as well. If you're not an Apple user, you can find the shows, though, on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, stream and download the MP3 file from the website, and you can grab the RSS link as well. Best part about it, all those other places, they have places where you can review us there. You can share it with your friends again it's you guys if you have a passion for star trek books and want to share them with others one of the ways you can do that is just help us share the show uh through your social media places um and letting people know about your favorite podcasts another way that you can help keep all the shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on patreon 
Um, you guys have heard us talk about this, and it is something that's really important. We are a listener-run network, and Dan and I just do this out of the, the joy of our own hearts for Star Trek books, but it also does cost us money for the books that we read, for the hosting, for the podcasts that we have on the network, all of these things. And so it's really through you guys that we can make that happen. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you'll find all the goals we have and some milestone contribution levels that come with some amazing perks. Um, I've got uh, our associate producers here on the show that actually get the show early. Um, and so that's one of the goals you can uh, reach. You can get uh, exclusive content, producer credits, and you can even help with the content development for the shows we have. Just find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You can contact us at trek.fm slash contact. We'd love to hear from you. Your thoughts on the Doctor Who crossover, any of the things that we talk about, any of the interviews we have with authors. We'd love to get some feedback from you guys. Even maybe some things that you might want to see us talk about. Uh, you could leave us a voicemail. Go to the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Of course, we're on Twitter at trek.fm, Facebook facebook.com slash trek.fm there's the babel conference it's an amazing place to have awesome discussions with us about the books we cover with some of the authors are even there in fact um dave gallanter is in the babel conference was talking about the book with the author interview that we had last week which is so much fun and then of course we have the goodreads group if you guys kind of want an idea of what we've got coming up next for the show bookshelves with all of the different books and comics we've covered and the shows they go to. Uh, when you want to jump into some more Star Trek discussions we've got going over there, another fantastic place to find us. And you can find us on Goodreads there through the show page. I really want to say thank you to the associate producers. Uh, Will Wynn, I, I love this guy. He's our content coordinator here on the network. And he actually found Trek FM through our show, through Literary Treks, and that's one of the reasons he is the sponsor here. Uh, and then he became a patron, and now he is the associate producer of The Orb, Earl Grey, and Literary Treks. He's also our content coordinator, as I said, and he also hosts Warp 5 now with Norman Lau. And I want to thank Ken Tripp as well. Without him, we just couldn't do this show. Thank you so much for being an associate producer here on Literary Treks. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to figure out why you're in a holodeck and that blue box isn't disappearing, where can we find you? <laughs> well, Matthew, uh, you can find me online. Uh, my website is www.treklet.com, and there I review uh, Star Trek novels, both old and new, a lot of the same ones we talk about on the show here. I'm on Twitter at Treklet Reviews, and I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash Treklet Reviews. And of course, I'm hanging out at the Babel Conference, uh, lurking, reading posts, and occasionally commenting and posting things of my own. And uh, Matthew, if you're not questioning Starfleet on its allocations of resources when it gives the Enterprise its fifth holodeck upgrade, uh, where can we find you? Damn those guys. I mean, I'm over here on the Potemkin, and we can't get one freaking holodeck. Come on. Come on! God. Well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I also do The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. The 602 Club, we pick a great new geeky topic each week, and we talk about that. We've had some fun shows recently. We talked through the Supergirl trailer and the Legends of Tomorrow trailer that had come out, uh, Narnia, Ultron, I mean, just a myriad of things, have some great shows coming up, check us out there, 
You can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.